this is Spencer in concrete. That's the voice of Tucson, Arizona-based artist Alvaro Enciso. We are in the Sonoran Desert, one of the hottest places on Earth in the summertime, just north of Nogales. It's a Tuesday, and we are remembering the dead. Would you find it, please? It starts with a dot, a red dot, which becomes a GPS coordinate on a map transformed into a hole, not too deep, cut into the earth with a pickaxe and shovel, then filled with moistened gravel and quick dry cement, into which Alvaro plants a simple cross. He's made the cross of rough two by three inch pine strips, painted a vibrant color and secured at the midpoint with a red dot, made from trash he's harvested from the desert floor. Your mind going down a little bit, I'm telling me if this way needs to move to the left or to the right. This one is painted green. The red dot is a metal cap from a watermelon-flavored bottled drink. Seems okay. You yeah, sure? Straight. Yeah. And then we offer a prayer. It's a solemn act performed in silence, save for the bark of a dog and the howling of traffic on Highway I-19. Witness Radio. This guy was found uh, a few months ago, and we have his name, Sergio Antonio Santiago. He was 24 years of age. Oh, boy. And he died from hyperthermia. Hyperthermia is an umbrella word for exposure to the elements. When you see that someone died from hyperthermia, that sounds medical term and very antiseptic, but it doesn't tell the suffering and the pain that that person went through because it's a horrendous death. When you die from lack of water and your brain fries and you go crazy and you want to kill yourself if you don't die right away. And he was right here so close to civilization. He was rare, probably at night, he just couldn't go any further and he just... Uh, he just collapsed. In Latin America, we believe that if you don't receive a proper burial, your ghost, your spirit is hanging around, tormented. That's why we say in Spanish, came past this cancer, rest in peace. So that person, that spirit can finally rest in peace. When it's not, that person's still hovering here, right. looking for an end to all of this. Peter is a, it's a Catholic mm -hmm. and he sprays holy water and then he puts rosaries. The monk used to come out with us and he used to put a rosary around him because the majority of these people, they're Catholic. So that was his, his intent. To, not to yeah. get that part. So it's sort of ironic that an infidel is doing this for the Catholics. But you have um, a different way of looking at the cross. Yeah, when you see one of these crosses, you're really looking at three different things. You're looking at a Christian cross that may not be the real thing because he's painted in a weird color and he's got a cap from a jar or something. But you're also seeing a geometrical figure a vertical line and a horizontal line. To me, the vertical lines is when you're alive and walking, and the horizontal line is when this guy lay down. And, and where they meet, that's when you went from being alive to being dead. Mm -hmm. But the cross is also a historical marker that was used by the Roman Empire to kill people. Mm -hmm. Remember, they used to hang them on crosses, false prophets, enemies of the empire. 
common criminals. They, they hung him out there for days in the sun without any wood until they died for everybody to see. Mm -hmm. Exactly what is happening here. People die from being exposed to the sun without any water on purpose because they close all the easy points of entry and they send them to the harshest and most difficult parts of the desert where they are bound to die and they use a, as a deterrent. Here, Alvaro is referring to Operation Gatekeeper. Launched on October 1st, 1994 by the Clinton administration, which then caved to the same nativist anti-immigrant fervor that squeezes the life from the soul of the U.S. nation today. Operation Gatekeeper erected walls and fences in easy-to-cross border areas with the express purpose of funneling human beings into dangerous and inhospitable terrain, where they would either perish or be more easily spotted. Walls and fences went up alongside a dramatic rise in Border Patrol agent hires, as well as surveillance technology purchases. Ports of entry were added to the walls, as were interior checkpoints as far away as 100 miles from the border. Guns were surged to the gates and checkpoints as prison beds were allocated for those apprehended before succumbing to hypothermia. As Operation Gatekeeper made its way east, from Imperial Beach, California to Brownsville, Texas. It divided thriving bicultural communities, devastated natural ecosystems, and transformed the southern borderlands of the United States into a militarized zone where law enforcement took on the job that would have, then as now, been better suited to humanitarians. Policymakers theorized that by making the journey across the border as devastatingly difficult as possible, by ensuring that folks in search of life, like Santiago, would die a slow and agonizing death, family and friends back home would get the message, do not come. The policy even had a name, prevention through deterrence. But they never understood that when you're poor and this is your only option, you're desperate, you do it anyway, because yeah. you run out of options in your life. This is it. Largely thanks to our economic policies. Well, out. yeah, I mean, migrants don't come here looking for that old romantic myth of the American dream. They're looking to find a little better life than what they have over there. And then there's the Clinton-era North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, that started, not coincidentally, the same year as Operation Gatekeeper. Almost as if the U.S. government knew that free trade between wealthy nations would not bode well for the poor. And so it began the process of walling the U.S. off, turning it into the gated community that it is today. They have been exploited for years and years and years. And there are no borders for the corporations right. that are exploiting them. So you, you know, you just poor. And, and, and you were able to save $100 you went to the store and bought some seeds, you put them in the ground, and it didn't rain for three months, you wiped out. But again, you went to the store, bought the seeds, put them in the ground, and it rained for five weeks nonstop. So they rotted, you wiped out. The North American trade agreement, good intentions, but not for the poor. So the poor got wiped out because they could not compete with the big corporations in the U.S., in Canada, and in Mexico. Mm -hmm. We never, never helped the poor. And that's never that case. The richer get richer and the poor get poorer. And there's no way for you to 
be able to jump from poverty into middle class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're going to have to stay there poor. So here is the only opportunity that you have. You're not going to be middle class here, but you may be a little better than being poor. Right. Just a little. That's all you want to be. Because that's all you can get. And yet, a vast majority finds that threatening. Yeah. You know, who's going to do the work if we don't let them in? The motels, the restaurants, the factories. Who's going to kill the cows and the pigs and the chickens? Who's going to pick up the strawberries and the apples and the grapes? All the jobs we don't want to do. Right. When historians begin to write this chapter of American history, it's going to be a very sad chapter that history didn't teach us anything. And it's going to be a very shameful chapter that we didn't treat our neighbors right. That we took everything that we could from them. Remember that the people who are coming here from Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, they were the banana republics. Remember that. United Fruit Company, huh? they exploited the shit out of those countries, all of the resources. And it's being repeated with mining and hydroelectric yeah. power. Yeah. Operation Gatekeeper kicked off the nearly three-decade militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, which was further turbocharged after 9-11. It has led to the ruin of an uncountable number of lives. In 1994, fewer than 30 people were known to have died crossing the border. By 1998, that number had quintupled to 147. Deaths more than doubled to 387 in 2000 and the trend continues apace. Conservative estimates suggest a death rate of at least one person each day since Operation Gatekeeper began. That's more than 10,000 dead to date. Meanwhile, a high of $17.7 billion taxpayer dollars were spent in 2021 on the morally questionable belief that the human right to seek a better life can be deterred through cruelty. This death here, no one knows about it, just me and now you. And so we put a market just to give this person a little bit of presence and also to point fingers, you know. We shouldn't let these things happen. No, not at all. No, not at all. This is not about cold Mexicans dying out here in the desert. It's about... Humanity. Humanity. It's about, it's human. about doing the wrong thing. Right. You know, it's about values. Not, not doing what we should be doing. It's a symbolic expression of who we should not be as a country. Right. And that it's also a warning that a lot of what's happening here was tried out in Germany in the 1930s. We don't want that to happen here. That's right. We need to be aware of things like that, that these people are important to us and that they deserve a chance. In fact, the title of my book is The First Solution, and it has a double meaning on the one hand. It is my intention to shine the light on the people like you who are at the front lines here trying to do the right thing despite the odds. But it's also a hat tip to Toni Morrison's famous speech in which she said, to get to a final solution, we need a first solution and then a second and then a third. Right. And I, I do believe if you added up all the deaths in the desert, all the deaths of deportees sent back to harm, all the people who are subject to our detention, our carceral system, etc., that we are committing a genocide. That's what we as are a doing. Nation. 
The, Certainly major crimes against humanity. Yeah, I mean, we did things that we had never done before, separating kids from their parents. That's a crime against humanity. Mm -hmm. Someone needs to pay for that. And it doesn't stop. Yeah. Title 42 is causing families to separate on their yeah. own. And we let it go for too long. We need to put a stop to this also. Yes. We were able to assimilate just about everybody who came into the country, mm -hmm. except for the Mexicans, because there's a barrier of race. Okay, so we need to learn that those people are just as important to the economy of this country and to who we are as a country. These are our neighbors. We have had a long relationship with Mexico. We love Mexican food. We love margaritas. We love Mexican beer. When we go on vacation, we think of Cancun and Puerto Vallarta and Oaxaca and all those places. We misappropriate their holidays like Dia de los Muertos. Mm -hmm. an opportunity for us to dress as skeletons and drink beer. Mm -hmm. Cinco de Mayo also, you know, the bars want to sell as much liquor as they can. And those people have been doing all of the work that this country relies on. Mm -hmm. So why is it that we don't want the racism? Because we learned that racism didn't go away. It was swept under the rug and right. the, half of the country is still racist against Mexicans, against blacks, mm -hmm. against gay people, and against a whole bunch of others. The American dream was never intended for the Native Americans, for the blacks, for the Mexicans, right. for the Chinese. It was intended for people with blue eyes and blonde hair. They wanted the Scandinavians and the Germans, and they didn't want these short brown people here. No. And it hasn't changed. But somehow, we try to follow that dream because that's all we have. Right. We never find it because the dream doesn't exist. Even if this person made it out of here, he or she will be living in shitty housing, mm -hmm. a menial job, mm -hmm. living in the shadows always. Mm -hmm. But his sons and daughters will be the next teachers and lawyers. And mm -hmm. Even the president of the United States, we have to give mm -hmm. them a chance mm -hmm. because this country is built on that concept. De acuerdo. You said 4,000 have been found and you've made that many crosses No, I have far? made about 1,100. Whoa. But that's over eight years. So effectively, you're turning the desert into an installation. I want to show people that the desert is full of death and suffering. Mm -hmm that very few people know about in this beautiful landscape. People are dying here. David powers up the GPS tracking device in his hand and shows me the cacophony of red dots splashed across the map of the vast Sonoran, one of the most blistering deserts on Earth, rivaled only by Iran's Dashtilut. Many red dots mark locations far off the beaten path, often landing within the nearly three million acre Tohono Adam nation. See the red dots? Yep. This just shows you the, how many there are in this vicinity. I mean, we're not even at the border. This just goes <gasps> everywhere. Most of the people who die out here are in the 20s and 30s, men and women. You shouldn't be dying at that age. A lot of them are unidentified people that have been recovered, but we don't have any names. What started as a dream to reveal to the world the U.S. government's responsibility for turning the Sonoran Desert into a graveyard has resulted in Alvaro transforming the desert into a cemetery, an art installation, and a memorial to the needless suffering of the unknown. 
He has planted to date more than 1,200 crosses in vibrant colors adorned with bits of metal trash found on the desert floor alongside the dead. More than 1,200 crosses and counting. Art without sentimentality. Art without end. Art that also reflects his own migration experience as a young man from Colombia. The situation is beyond church and is beyond, uh, you know, it's a bigger project that we cannot let this to happen. It's like a practice, you know, you do it and you do it. And remember what John Louis said? Do good trouble. Do good trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and this is part of what I do. I'm not an overly religious person and I'm not overly political, but this becomes my practice. I have a studio practice mm -hmm. and I have a field practice. So this is like the day I go to church. You know, every time I put a cross here, for a stranger, person who died looking for a better life. I always think about, you know, migration is a two-part thing. Those who come north and those who stay behind. What well, a death here destroys a family, either there or here. Sometimes they have families in both sides. So every time I put a cross here, I connect with the, my own losses in my own life. I connect with the loss of my grandmother who raised me all of my romantic disgraces as well. So everything is connected in some way. Yeah. I don't talk about those things because that's my personal work. And it's also a sort of atonement. I did a lot of damage in Vietnam. It was the loss of innocence. I went straight from childhood into war. I was a very young man who didn't speak English at all. And I was an infantryman because I didn't have any skills. And so what do you learn in the army? Well, I learned to kill people. That's not a good education. That's not what I had in mind. It was forced upon me. But that gave me the opportunity to get an education that I wanted to prove to myself, despite what my family said about, don't bother looking for a better way of life because you're gonna be poor forever. But I had somehow that dream. Yeah. <laughs> Sounding like Martin Luther King. High school was the pinnacle of my education for my family. Mm. But I wanted to go beyond that. My mother told me, you cannot have dreams, you're poor. I hated that. She said, you have to somehow learn to be poor. I said, well, I cannot accept that. And I cannot accept drunkness, domestic abuse, machismo, things that I don't agree with. And I needed to leave because my future was not going to be there. Uh-huh. And that was the 50s or 60s? 60s. And that's why I left, looking for home. Because that's what we all want, home. A place where we can feel like we belong mm -hmm. and we feel that we are safe and we have the things that we need. Were you drafted? Yes. And then you used the GI Bill to get educated after you yeah, came home? I drove a taxi in Manhattan and I also mop peep shows. Every time a guy went into a peep show and come out, I would mop the floor so the next person would not slip. Oh my God, where'd you do that, in Times Square? Yeah, 42nd and 8th Avenue. We mark four more red dots this Sacred Tuesday, one located within an Arizona ranch. We enter on foot and without permission. So we're gonna do the same that far from here. Okay. If we can, it's here, you know. This is private property. Peter slips through the barbed wire fencing when we find the gate to the private drive locked. 
We passed to him the tools, water, gravel, and quick-dry cement, before taking our own risks with the barbs. I am entrusted with carrying a red cross made of two-by-three-inch pine strips, secured at the central meeting point with a red dot made of metal trash. We begin our long, hot walk in search of the coordinates David tracks. So far from everything that we park the car as far as we can drive, and then we hike. Gotcha. Sometimes one mile, sometimes two miles. Sometimes we have long, long hikes. Four hour hikes. Be careful here on this road here. Alvaro, for whom these trips into the desert have begun to exact a physical toll, uses the shovel as a walking stick. Do you need a hand? You got your no, okay. shovel cane. When we spy the ranch owner speeding toward us, his dual cab pickup truck kicking up a cloud of red desert dust, Alvaro drops his shovel cane, throws up his hands, and plants himself squarely in the truck's path. My heart races, wondering if this will be the day that Alvaro, too, becomes a red dot on the Sonoran map. But on learning our purpose, the rancher humbly allows us to proceed. We leave the bright red cross in a horse paddock in the memory of one who was welcomed in death, though in life he was not. We had information from 2001 to 2010. Then the University of Arizona did some research and found cases that go back to the 90s. This is one of them. Okay. This is from 1997. And so we have very little information because they didn't keep good records in those days. Our search brings us to the bottom of a wash. It's dry now and the earth is hard. As David struggles to prepare the hole, Peter and I set out with a bucket to collect rocks from the surrounding environment that the team ritualistically places at the base of each cross. They make it look pretty. They provide it additional support. Have you been uh, planting these crosses with... Alvaro for a long time? For going on like, going on three years. I've been involved with the Samaritans for four years now. Here's a rock. Oh yeah. Go ahead and leave those here. Yep, we'll then we we'll pick them up on the way back. Do you sometimes, like that guy was pretty simpatico. Uh -huh. Do you sometimes get hostility? Rarely. Here's one. Almost not. Almost not? Yeah. But I mean, sometimes we encounter people that say, well, I don't know. They shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be crossing. Um, then once Alvaro talks to them for a little bit, then they kind of like, yeah, sure. I don't see why not. You know. Yeah, go ahead. And, you know, they have like a change of, change of mind, change of heart. Because at the end of the day, Everyone understands the importance of burying the dead. Well, yeah. At that point, they probably say, you know, well, why be an asshole? Here's one. There's a little one. A rosary draped, more holy water sprinkled, another father, uncle, son, brother, who lost his life in search of life, remembered with a prayer starting and ending with his name, for we can never know the dreams and aspirations that died with him in the Sonoran Desert. And we have his name, Jesus Antonio Cardona Lopez. And another remembered, 
his red dot marked with a yellow cross. Filiberto Ramirez Carranza, age 40. Probable hyperthermia and one day old, fully fleshed. And since we have a name, we assume that this person went back to his family. The medical examiner works with the uh, Mexican consulate to send the body back. So you wonder about the expense involved of picking up the body, and yeah. storing it, and examining it, and sending it back to its family. And, they and have I to wonder how much that would have translated into picking this guy up and taking him to a welcome center and hydrating him and giving him a meal. Right. Cool. Improving the conditions in his home so he doesn't have to make the trip. Right, there we go. So do you think there's any hope given the extraordinary, extraordinary wealth that's being made off the militarization of our border? I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard the term immigration reform in a very long time in Washington. Mm-hmm. Since 2013. Yeah. So, uh, we're here for the long run. There's hope, of course, that one day we're, we'll be able to solve what's happening here. But I don't see it anytime soon. Did you have hope that a new Democratic administration would change things? Well, maybe a, a Democratic uh, administration and a Democratic Congress. Because, you know, those Republican fuckers in the Congress... They're not going to give up all the wealth they're making yeah. off surveillance and detention and deportation. Yeah, and, and that's all money-making, you know, there's private detention centers everywhere. Even the buses that bring migrants from where they get apprehended to the detention center is a private thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody's making money. Off so, this misery. Out of this misery, yeah. The Mexicans don't have a good lobby. You say anything bad about Israel, you're anti-Semitic. You say something bad about the NRA, you're anti-patriotic. You know, you don't believe in this country, you don't believe in freedom. But the Mexicans don't have that because most of them were poor and they only had one thing in mind, to work the fields. And it wasn't until recently that they finally realized that the only way to change things for them is to get into politics. And that came out of the labor movement? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Started with Cesar Chavez and people like that. Mm-hmm. So there's hope in that. And hope that these DACA people, some of them will be immigration lawyers, and some of them will be politicians, and that will help. But in the meantime, we have to do what needs to be done here. Telling people in Ohio and Idaho that people are dying out here. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to be someone in life, there's nothing illegal about that. But they have been demonized as bad people, people taking jobs away from us. It's nonsense. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. Yes, we do. You know, last year, it was the highest number of deaths here. So looks like we haven't gotten anywhere right but it doesn't matter because you still have to do it it doesn't stop me from 
spending a couple of days a week making crosses and coming out here and putting them up. Do you and anticipate that this year will be even higher than last? It's going to be high. It's not going to be as high as last year because what happened last year is that we were able to go into areas that we have never been to. People had died there years ago. I see. So we found all these skeletons. I see. Because there are some rescue groups in San Diego, like Aguilas del Desierto, Armadillo Search and Rescue, and others, who started coming to Arizona to look for bodies. So they found a whole bunch of them. One day they brought a cadaver dog and they found eight remains. The dog found eight remains in areas that were so remote that no one knew that they were crossing through there. If you're ever in Tucson and want to ride with Alvaro, you can contact him through the Tucson Samaritans. That's what I did. And if you can't spend a day planting crosses, put yourself out there by donating to him your leftover house paint. On my way out of town, I stopped at his neighborhood Ace Hardware and picked up a gallon of vibrant Mexican sky blue, the last view of those who lay dying. Now I'm out there, somewhere in the Sonoran Desert, part of the art installation slash cemetery that screams quietly at us to rethink the policy of prevention by deterrence, more aptly called deterrence by cruelty, our first, second, possibly third solution. Well, I'm so grateful for your invitation for us to join you today. Each planting is a solemn event. Yeah, it's a reminder that, you know, you see numbers. There are lives inside those numbers. Yeah. These people have names, and they have families, and they have people who love them, and they have feelings just like all of us. They want the same things that we want here. We have the same feelings, you know, same emotions. They're not that different from us. No. They just happen to be born on. They just happen to be born on the other side of. And, a, and born, born uh, on the other side of the border. On the, on the side of the border, and, and that's it. Which is an arbitrary thing, anyway. We don't have any control as to where we were born or who your parents were. Right. As people say, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us, right? The border wasn't here, the border was somewhere in Colorado. Read more about Alvaro's mission and other inspiring tales in an incredible anthology now available from She Writes Press, publisher of my forthcoming book, The First Solution. Entitled Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis, it highlights stories of artists pushing back against the drumbeat of fear and division sown by uncertainty to remind us of our shared humanity. Order your copy today where all books are sold. Proceeds go to Chef Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider rating and reviewing Witness Radio on your favorite podcast platform. Besides wrapping us in your virtual embrace, it'll help others find the show. For bonus content, episode-related news, and other updates, I would love you to become a patron of Witness Radio. Just go to patreon.com slash witnessradio and sign up. Big gratitude to Witness Radio executive producer Camilo Perez Bustillo, as well as producer and editor Livia Brock. I'm Sarah Towell, author of the forthcoming book, The First Solution, as well as host and creator of Witness Radio, where we aim to expose all the issues plaguing the U.S. immigration system today.
Whether it's child detention, family separation, ICE impunity, violations of human rights and legal due process, threats to asylum, border externalization, climate refugees, you name it. This is why we witness. Don't look away. Become a witness at the border today.